if we are to do ecological theology well, we must be ecological. We must recognize our relations, our influences, our interdependencies, and also our differences, and and learn to learn to be united amongst differences without trying to force a sort of uniformity of one way of being or knowing over another. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work and everyday circumstances combine in any person's life, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Tyler Mark Nelson, an advanced student in the Masters of Divinity program at Yale Divinity School. Tyler was raised on the northern banks of the Mississippi River, a stretch of the world that figured deeply in helping him come to know who he is. He began his work life with several years in horticulture, supporting human resources and sales at a large Minnesota greenhouse leading operations with a university vermiculture and compost program, and farming at an organic lavender farm in eastern Washington state. He's also spent a great deal of time in the wilderness, most recently with people who are new to time and wild nature. Tyler is a Christian. He is a writer and theologian. He is a climate activist, and he's a person who has lived with significant mental health challenges. Tyler finds ecotheology and his own experience in the natural world to be reliable supports for living well these days on Earth. In our conversation, we weave childhood clarity with adult wisdom to consider how we may all reach out to the natural world for guidance when the going gets tough. Well, hi, Tyler. It's so good to see you here on How It Looks From Here. Mary, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me for this conversation today. It's a delight. Well, I know that you were there at Yale Divinity School working on a degree, an advanced degree, and I know that you have a significant devotion to the well-being of wild nature and the natural world in general. Um, How did you come to be interested in the natural world? What brought you into that enthusiasm? Mm. Uh, I, I love that kind of question because it's it always starts somewhere, right? Um, it, yeah, what what I attribute to my love of the natural world is just my, my childhood. You know, my parents were really big into camping. Uh, we kind of have this joke that I was born in a Coleman tent which isn't too far from the truth because they had a portable crib they would take with them into the, <laughs> the Black Hills, um, state parks all around Minnesota, national parks around the country. And since, yeah, essentially being a, being a babe, uh, I grew up camping, hiking. Um, my folks were really good about 
trying to educate us as well during the summer. So while we were at state parks or other other type of outdoor places, they would enroll us in these like junior ranger programs. So we would have our little junior ranger badge, we'd have a little booklet, and we'd go through the woods or the prairies or the bogs, the, the waterways, and just start learning different plants, different insects. We would color in there and, and just, um, I think it helped develop my awareness of, of the more than human world around me. You know, it's, it's difficult to draw a bird if you're not really looking closely to see the shape of the wing or the tail or try to get that hue of blue or red just right. Um, so that, yeah, the, that's a huge part. Another part of it was the, the privilege of having a forest behind my childhood home. It was called Pheasant Ridge Park. Oh, and it was I... this charming, isn't it great? Yeah. Pheasant Ridge. Yeah. If, if I could write folk songs better, I would write a song called like Pheasant Ridge. Uh, but anyhow, Pheasant Ridge Park. Uh, my mom ran a daycare as well. And multiple days a week, she would have the, the whole flock of kids, her little ducklings, walking through Pheasant Ridge on the nature trails and um, then as I grew older and was able to leave the yard on my own, I would meet up with friends in the forests and we would build forts, make tree houses. Uh, I, I feel like I, I knew every stand of trees there. I knew every contour of the land, every deer trail through the shrubs. And it was just a, a place where my own, I don't know, like ecological imagination was able to, to grow and, and flourish. And um, I do realize, too, that that's a, a huge gift. It's a large privilege that speaking to other friends now, I realize that um, others did not have that kind of upbringing for one reason or another. So I, I counted a, a privilege and a blessing that I was able to do that. Yeah. And um, today, just trying to share that kind of wonder and awe with, with more folks and try to remove whatever thresholds might be in the way of you know, humans connecting with the other than human world around yeah. us. Well, that's wonderful. I, I also know that early in your career that you worked in vermiculture and greenhouses. And so I'm curious for how you would, I, and I do know, and we're going to get into this to some extent, that what you found is a way of weaving together your theological understandings with what you've come to understand and know about the natural world and your relationship with it. But I'm curious about how your career in vermiculture and greenhouses, how that has figured in your theological understandings. How do they weave for you? Mm. The vermiculture. Um, I, I worked at a university grounds department running their vermiculture and compost program a number of years back. So while I was studying eco-theology and um, you know, really starting to get, to get some language for these things that I, I grew up sort of intuitively understanding. Uh, I was also working with an industrial size worm bin. So we, the uh, grounds department had, had obtained a grant from PepsiCo to, to try to um, close the food waste cycles with their refectory as well as local businesses and then um, use that food through compost but especially through this vermiculture program to create 
an organic form of fertilizer. Uh, so the goal essentially was to move away from synthetic fertilizers and insecticides and all of all that goes into the ground and and we know it doesn't just stay in the ground it goes further yeah so the hope was get this this uh nine foot wide by five foot across by four foot deep uh bin of worms wow and there were there were hundreds and hundreds of worms in there and i was tasked with keeping them alive keeping them happy keeping them fed and then as they did what worms do and they processed through that food at the the bottom third of the bin was just this rich black moist organic material that the the worms had produced and we had a winch at the bottom that would slice it uh, two inches at a time or so and then we had this whole process of creating a liquid fertilizer with it and applying it through um, kind of really fancy golf carts or grounds carts that then sprayed it on the, the lawn and the, the annual beds. And it was a great thing. It was fantastic. Huh. Um, but to get back to your question, uh, or maybe I should tell your listeners what vermiculture is. Well, yes, I, I think vermiculture and ecotheology, both of those things that you've mm. said. Yes. So take your time. Yeah, yeah you. let us know what you mean by okay. those. So vermiculture is the process of of working with worms and a, a particular type of worm a red wriggler i forget the latin right oh, it's now it's a great name is, okay. <laughs> another one yeah red wriggler <laughs> say that five times yeah. fast and working with worms feeding them and then using their excrement as a as a way of um, using or creating an organic fertilizer an organic supplement or amendment to soils and garden beds so that was that's that was vermiculture, and I, I love that someone did this in the grounds department because it ties in ecotheology so well. Above the worm bin in this pole shed where I was stationed was a, a sign that said theology, and someone I, I won't name names, but someone had stolen this sign or maybe relocated this sign from the theology building and posted it above the worm bin and drew a large arrow pointing into the worms. <laughs> and every day while I was working with environmental ethics and all these other um, fields of study, I was also tending to the worms and looking at that sign going, what are the worms teaching me right now? What are the worms telling me about life and flourishing and community and being a good creature? And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that, that was, a, that was a, a helpful, creative way that I could continue to look for ways of making ecotheology practical, grounded, and earthy, if you will. So how would you define ecotheology? Ecotheology, I believe, is just shorthand for ecological theology. It's also gone by environmental theology, and it's really a, a field of constructed theology that... Um, takes into account the ecological sciences, takes into account creation, uh, which is you know, sort of this religious language of saying the natural world or the cosmos or all things that are created. And it moves beyond just a, or it can move beyond just a systematic theology or systematic study of the material world. 
uh, it can it can move into so many other areas. And what I love about it is it it does try to build dialogue with the various sciences. It tries to build dialogue with sociology and the, the uh, social sciences. Um, you know, in, in my own work, I've dealt with animal ethologists who are studying the behavior and emotional lives of non-human animals, or working with um, you know critical geographers who are examining the way that humans and, and different types of humans perceive the landscape around them, and then conceptualize, you know, almost placing their own map of the world or their own understanding of the world onto this land and relating to it through their own lens. And um, yeah, which has caused all sorts of interesting issues that we've we've faced as a species. And so, yeah, ecotheology is just what I, I consider an umbrella term that um, draws in everything that one could one could term ecological. Um, one of the huge challenges to the dominant culture is that we get great ideas and they're like really great. But I guess the next question that I have for you is how do these understandings, and you said you try to overlap and break down the silos, essentially, it seemed like you were saying, between different disciplines and to build these shared understandings. So really great ideas, but when you and when you put those together with your time in the wilderness and your time with the worms and your time growing food in greenhouses, um, how, and and with theological inquiry, how do all of those things inform action? And I guess I'd like to hear how they inform your action in the world. Um, I think I'll have to pick apart at pieces of that. So eco-theology in general, and one, another point I'd like to make on that is it's a big umbrella. So um, one, one of the, the primary issues that I think Western education and, and Western ways of knowing have is thinking that that's the one and only way of knowing or one, or one and only way of being. And so eco-theology you know, is, is such a beautiful field because it's more, it's more of a, uh, quilt work of fields, plural. So engaging with, um, eco theologians in South Africa will be very different than engaging with them in Guatemala, which will be very different from the UK and so on and so forth. And so I, I, I think if we are to do ecological theology, well, we must be ecological in that sense. We must recognize our relations, our influences, our interdependencies, and also our differences, and, and learn, to, learn to be um, united amongst differences without trying to force a sort of uniformity of one way of being or knowing over another. So that, I wanted to make that point uh, because that's a, a key issue in, in um, the American environmental history and, and so on. And it's definitely an action. Mm. It is mm -hmm. an action to, to see the limits of our own ways of seeing and know that really each person, but certainly in different cultures, there really are radically different ways of seeing and knowing from which we can learn. Is that consistent with what you're suggesting? I believe so. Yeah, I would say so. A, a good example is... 
the, the, the myth of wilderness in the United States, uh, which is you know, wilderness is an, a theme or a motif that I've been working with my whole life before I, I realized I was working with it. So now here at, at Yale, I've been uh, trying to form a good, a good chunk of my classes around this idea of wilderness, whether in biblical studies or in, um, shoot, you, you look at critical race theory or the, the different um, theorists out there, you look at um, all sorts of fields and wilderness is conceived in one way or another, but I think they, are, they can connect. So, um, and I feel like I'm getting in the wilderness with my answers because it feels like there's so much to say. And uh, to be honest, I, I'm rarely asked by people to speak about eco-theology. Uh, it's, it's an area uh, much like climate action in general where uh, you mention it and folks will nod their head and say, yes, that's important and needed. But then you ask them, well, one, what are you doing or, or how are you learning or growing in this? Or two, you know, do you know what that means? And and there's sort of a blank stare that comes across, and then, you know, just kind of wrapping it up, saying, "Yeah, but but it's a good thing," and move on. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I appreciate this conversation because it's a way that I can um, even find language myself to to describe this type of work because we're at a point in human history where. We're, we're lacking in many things to address these issues, and one of that is the language that we use. Yeah. So, wilderness. <laughs> uh, wilderness and the Wilderness Act of 64 um, is this huge leg, uh, legislation that, that legally codified wilderness in the United States. And we can, we can trace that back to, uh, you know, the wilderness conservationists of the early 20th century, moving from there into the 19th century and you have sort of this um, white middle class bourgeoisie leisurely push to get outside to these places to encounter the sublime. You know, you had some deism and some romanticism connected in there and boom, you have Yellowstone. But how did they get Yellowstone? Well, at first it took uh, violently displacing and dispossessing the indigenous tribes that had stewarded that land for so long. And you, you start moving backwards in, in history and seeing where this sort of theological language develops. And um, at first it was explicitly there, but then I, I think it, it went beneath the surface and has continued to inform this concept of wilderness. Uh, someone who, who speaks so well on that and, and writes on it is Willie James Jennings, Dr. Willie James Jennings here at Yale. And his book, The Christian Imagination, details how the, the th- sort of theology of whiteness and then a, a whiteness creating a theology in um, Europe many centuries ago had, had moved across the sea to, to the United States here or the, to this to this land before there was a nation. And, um, you know, these ideas of terra nullius or uh, tabula rasa, these ideas of, um, you know, really dating, going back to Genesis and the, the Eden story where it's a blank slate and the, um, the blessed of God are going there to create something out of a blank slate. The blessed aren't already there. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah, 
interest just no no and so the blessed who are already there are called wilderness is that correct um the the whole land was considered wilderness and those who dwelled in it and had been dwelling for many millennia were uh considered horrible terms like savage or um less than humans who were possessed by demons and must be must be saved through a very particular narrow understanding of the Christian message. And then the doctrine of discovery comes around and you have state power and military power using theologically constructed visions of land and people and creatures to, uh, to destroy and to oppress and to spread out and conquer. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm dancing between um, time periods here but you move from that early era to the 19th century and the the creation of outdoor recreation and leisure and then the 20th century institutionalizing of that through governmental agencies and eventually legal code that defines wilderness as you know something untrammeled a land untrammeled by man uh, that where there is little to no structure, permanent structure of humans, and it maintains its primeval characteristics. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. I want to draw, uh, connect a few dots. Please. The doctrine of discovery is something that most people don't know about. And, and essentially, quite simplistically, it said, wherever you stand is yours. And the, the doctrine of discovery and the way that you've linked it to contemporary um, kind of entitlement to recreation. And... and but at the same time, the kind of uh, making recreation this thing that people do on land that is no longer wild because they've been there. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the extraction of humans from wilderness, that's all, those are all things that you're, you're considering. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? In this, in this theological consideration of wilderness, am I following you right? That's correct. Yeah, it's, it's, my examination of of historic cases where theology and religious thought have informed the way that certain persons, certain communities or institutions envision land and envision whose land that is and what can or ought to be done on that land. Yeah. And so and, and the reason I'm doing this is to better understand what's happening today in the conservation movement, the American environmental movement, um, you know, wilderness, places that are federally designated as wilderness today are still being affected by climate change, you know, anthropogenic climate change. And so is it even possible to call a place wilderness when it no longer even meets the legal definition of that? Um, and then when we, when we speak about environmental justice, and the, the historic trail of injustices, the ways that 
humans and lands have been treated uh, by systems of, of oppression, whether that's colonialism or capitalism or you know, go down the list, white supremacy. Um, to, today, I'm seeking to better understand, you know, what is this religious baggage that continues to inform the way that many people are engaging with these landscapes? And then are there resources within um, the, the Christian tradition, which is where I call home, that are able to, to counter that theological structure and, um, and doing so in a way that expands far beyond this, this white Western um, theology that's awesome, often system, systematized and instead looking to see those who are already doing this kind of work. Who else is already um, either reconceptualizing their relationship to the other than human world or who has been doing this and has not stopped doing this and are just now being listened to in recent centuries. And, and there's, there's so much more to, to learn and to, to unlearn in that process. Yes, yes. So that, that's a little background of, of why wilderness is so big, is it really gets to the heart of how do humans, uh, based off of many different factors, but especially religious factors, how do they relate to the rest of the world around them? And if they're doing it poorly, what can be done from those religious frameworks? And if they're doing it well, what can we learn from those religious frameworks? Well, I, one of the things I also have learned about you is that you have been quite active in um, helping people in systematic ways consider these kinds of questions and take action uh, based on those considerations. And it seems to me, if I got this right, that, that that's a thing you really enjoy on the one hand, but on the other hand, it can be wearing. Mm. What, <laughs> what would you say about that experience, describing some of your experience and speaking of the, the wear and tear? <laughs> the wear and tear. <laughs> yes and yes. Yeah. One of my greatest joys is, is bringing people out onto a trail of some type. Um, it could be a, a local city park. It could be a national park. It could be wherever. But just getting them outdoors away from what is their usual environment and encouraging them and inviting them to pay attention. You know, oh, look at, look at this flower over here. Do you, do you hear that bird? Can we find that bird together? Do we know who, who that bird is? And so forth. And so it's this idea of... of um, inviting people into this conversation, inviting people into this, if I can even call it a, a vision of seeing the, the created world around us. And, um, and when, when I'm not able to do that out on the trail, there's the pulpit, there's the, the paper, there's the conversation over a meal or over a Zoom call. There's, um, I guess I'm, I'm much more familiar with the you know, the conferences and the paper writing and the sermonizing and so forth. But what I'm seeking to do moving forward here is, is um, craft my, my writing so it's far more engaging to the public and inviting more folks into that. Um, and another way, too, is, is community organizing. So last year, as a, my second year in the program, I was also one of the co-leaders of our environmental group here at the Divinity School called Common Ground. I think it's a fitting name. We share that common ground. And through that, 
we were able to to host guest speakers who had been um, activists of various types through the decades. We were able to um, f- um, host and facilitate different sorts of rituals and spiritual gatherings. Uh, a good friend of mine, Meredith Barges and, and Kaylee Kassenheiser, a couple of years back, had created a bird mass, a bird migration mass, where we gathered on the stone labyrinth on campus here. And they, they guided us through song and prayer and um, poetry and uh, bodily ritual so that we could simply honor the birds who were migrating over, overhead in the, the fall. And so it's, uh, yeah, I, I think creativity and imagination is key in this type of work. And so that's something I'm trying to practice here. Um, activism as well. Uh, last fall, I had organized a group of, of students here to go down to Manhattan, which was just a quick two-hour, 20-minute train ride from, from New Haven. And we participated in a large multi-faith climate action which was organized by Green Faith. And uh, if anyone, if any of your listeners have not heard of Green Faith, I highly recommend they check them out on their website. Uh, it says global multi-faith climate organization that uh, I, think, I think really demonstrates how to unite religious and spiritual life and values with climate action and showing up on the streets um, Fletcher Harper, who is the, I think, the director, once said that, you know, seminarians behind pulpits speaking about ecology is a, you know, you can find them all around. And what we need are priests and faith leaders out on the streets demonstrating their beliefs, demonstrating their theology. So that's a bit of the work that I've done. Uh, This last summer, I've decided to pull back and take a, a season of rest which gets to the second part of your question, the wear and tear. Um, I just found that after the, the many years of study, um, I, I, I ended up going to undergrad later in my life, restarting from scratch to pursue this area of, of ecotheology. So going from undergrad into the pandemic and still trying to be part of local, uh, local service, and then from there to New Haven and Yale, and all that's been going on here, I, I reached a point of burnout. And that's something that I didn't realize how bad burnout could be until I burned out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mental health has been a challenge my whole life since at least the age of six or seven. And um, as an adult, I had learned how to um, either cope or how to heal, how to go through and live with this so that it's, it's less of a brick wall that I face day after day, but instead it, it's more of a, a frenemy, if you will, um, or it's a hurdle that I learned to develop the skills. Say more about that. The, the frenemy part? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say more about how you know that, because it sounds like you're kind of an expert. You've been living with this for a while. Mm. Um, I don't think I would take the expert Label, label, but I would say I'm, I'm pretty well acquainted with melancholy, with anxiety, depression. You know, eight, age six or seven is when I, I first developed uh, depression and really debilitating anxiety. 
I was I was just a very shy and reserved child who was off in my own world, you know. Uh, I was like Kelvin in the Kelvin and Hobbes comics, just having an adventure in the woods or daydreaming in class and doing my thing. Um, but when engaging in, in social events, that, that was a whole other level of stress. Um, with that came uh, OCD, which manifested through a germophobia um, and, and other types of tics. And by the time I hit middle school, you know, de- depression was just a beast. The, the anxiety was the, um, you know, I, I think of the Muggsy and Bugs old cartoons where there's the, the big gangster and then there's the little uh, sidekick who kind of riles them up. Anxiety was the one riling it up and the big, you know, beefy brunt was the depression that would just take me out. Uh-huh. So, yeah, uh, but through that... There, over the years, I found like melancholy and depression were distinct. They were related but distinct. And so, learning to work with melancholy while also learning to um, become resilient and develop a sort of lifestyle and spirituality that helped me through depression and anxiety um, that, that's what I mean by frenemy. Uh-huh. That, that I'm well acquainted, I know they're they're. I know how they speak. I know their jokes. I know their traps. <laughs> and um, it's my job, my responsibility to ensure that I am taking care of myself so that I don't step into one of those traps. And it usually occurs when I'm tired yeah. and exhausted. Yeah. yeah. And so what would you say to our listeners? I mean, what what is it that – how does the natural world help you in this? Mm. How does the uh, – other than – yeah, other than human, which is everything, other than humans, with which we are all related. How does that help you? And how might it help yeah. people who are listening? Yeah. Oh, what, a, what, a, what an important question. I, so I can speak for myself, and um, maybe I'll dare try speaking for, for some uh, spiritual guides who I've I've studied and been taught by, but for myself, even as a child, I found that going out into Pheasant Ridge Park, going into the woods by myself, and just paying attention mm-hmm. was such good medicine. Just um, paying attention. Just paying attention. Ah. We are in an attention economy, and it is highly desired and highly profitable, and yet in such low supply. And so as a child, I think developing the habit and discipline of paying attention to the world around me, learning to attune myself to the creatures around me, you know, if, if, if I imagine how many of your listeners might walk into the woods and the woods go silent and they think, oh, this is a quiet forest. But actually what's occurred is, is someone who was not attuned to the, the sounds and movements and sights of the forest entered that ecosystem and all the other creatures responded and they're checking them out. So, so what does it mean to be able to soak in and become a creature amongst creatures in this place so that the other creatures respond to you as just another creature, you know, where, where their, their song is, the bird song is audible because they're not concerned about you because they know that you're 
you're doing your thing down there on the forest floor uh, where other um, you know s- smaller creatures field mice or moles or squirrels they might come around and investigate you and even come close to you and I, I just developed this discipline over the years to soak into place um, I have a very very fond memory of a time on the Mississippi River which is which is what my hometown bordered up against and I was just in a really dark and fragile place having a really difficult season and I would often go to the shores of the Mississippi and I go off the trail of the local county park and I I had um, different trees and stones who I knew that would guide me to this particular place on the shore and then on that shore there was a slanted boulder that was resting upon a level boulder which made this really comfortable chase lounge for my body. <laughs> and, and then my feet could dangle off the edge into the, the waters of the Mississippi, which at that point along the river, being on the northern end, was still pretty clear. Pretty clear, and you could see uh, you know, the, the crayfish and the small little grasses beneath the surface. And what I would do is simply lay there, lay on that spot still and listen to everything around me try to track the sound of a leaf falling from a tree and where around my body that leaf landed or what from which direction is the wind blowing and uh, what is responding to the wind and then I, I came to a point where I I found that if I was so still and just so in place that the insects would make make my body uh, a small retreat for themselves so bees would come and land on my hands and just rest there. They might, they might lick up some salt, but uh, they, they would simply just rest their wings there. And I've had upwards of six or seven bees on one hand at a time who just found a simple place of refuge, just as I was finding a place of refuge in that forest along the Mississippi. So paying attention, uh, I think, can lead to deeper relationships and a uh, a greater sense of belonging as a creature among creatures. And with that belonging and with that experience of, of just being seen with no mask on, being seen without any pretense, no one, no, none of the birds cared about my CV or what job I worked or how much I earned for the director or the, or the board. Right. Um, they just wanted to know, are you safe? Are you here? Can we work together? Can yeah. we relate? And then taking that back into my, my human communities and my regular work environment. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a transformative practice for me. And that's something that I've been developing eco-spiritual practices around. I developed some, some retreats and small workshops to try to introduce people to these ideas. But beyond the ideas and practices is this grander hope that they will come into this way of being, uh, being amongst others that is so very different from the type of relationships, the type of being and subjectivizing that the culture around is imposing upon so many. In the work that we do over here in Full Ecology, we talk about being nature in nature. Um this one of the things that seems quite uh, a a challenge 
to uh, the way we're, we're all socialized is to really break down the barriers between the human psyche and the natural world. We're just making it up that we're not the natural world. And, and so your story, and especially the way that it speaks to, as an antidote to, antidote would be wrong, um, a companion to what our culture calls mental illness, you know, which is really also just a condition. But, but the, this is the, the, the welcoming of that into the natural setting where it isn't, as, it isn't disturbing to anybody else. And it can recede as being a disturbing thing for you in that moment and what you described. Thank you for sharing that. I think this is vital to, um, I mean, it's vital to anyone who experiences what has been called mental illness. Um, other people have called it more recently exceptional states of knowing. Um, but so that's that's very, very important. But also, I think what you've been saying uh, can be helpful to people who honestly have climate anxiety or eco-anxiety by whatever name. So so as we come to a close here, Tyler, I'm curious, um, in addition to all the beautiful things that you've offered, do you have any particular, I don't know, you're a wise man at your young years, um, wisdom, <laughs> um, uh, suggestions, advice for the listeners here to this podcast? I'll say that whatever wisdom that I do have the the gift of possessing is um, from teachers who have taught it to me, and from a, a trail of a trail of mistakes, mishaps, and foolishness that I could learn good lessons from. So thank you for that. Uh, I, I find that the the world around is such a good teacher of lessons, and so I, I think my word of advice would be to to listen, to pay attention. To to explore, um, explore the the world around, and and I don't mean just go to a national park. You know, there while while they can be great, there are so many issues about accessibility and their fraught history and the ways that they are carried out today. What I mean is, in a city green, look for the birds, or just take notice to a, a single blade of grass. Uh, you know the the. Um, the the, Eng, the English mystic Julian of Norwich spoke about, I believe it was a hazelnut held in her hand, and that the the infinite cosmos or the infinite love of God was within that single hazelnut. And uh, I know there's a romantic poet who I'm blanking on his name today, but who speaks of the the world being in a single single grain of sand. And so pay attention to small things, pay attention to insects and to the bees, pay attention to how these relate to you and then how you might relate to them and be open to being taught, be open to, to awe and um, being shown how to be a good creature in a time when humans are still learning what it means to be a creature. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Tyler, so much for this time and for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Mary, this was, this was a delight. You can learn more about Tyler Mark Nelson by visiting the links in the show notes. 
In particular, check out his recent article, Environmental Justice and the Religious Imagination, recently published in the Yale Divinity School Journal, Reflections. You'll also find links for several resources Tyler mentioned today. Each of them can help you dig deeper to consider how, religious or not, your way of making sense of the world is affected by listening to nature's wisdom and honoring our kinship. During our conversation, I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson, and available in bookstores everywhere. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational project of full ecology. How It Looks From Here is produced by me, Mary Claire, editing by Gary Ferguson, music by Gary Ferguson and other artists, noted in the show notes. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.